Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 9th edition of Warcom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd's Karen and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal reversed an order for back pay claimed by an injured psychology professor. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Mary Baxter versus Riverside Community College District. In 1989, the community college hired Mary Baxter as a counselor and associate professor of psychology. In 2003, Baxter suffered a work-related injury and later she requested reasonable accommodations. She contends the college district did not reasonably honor the request. Baxter filed a petition for writ of mandate in the Superior Court in June 2008, requesting reinstatement and back pay to 2006. The trial court granted the petition, ordering the college district to reinstate her as a professor with back pay effective June 9, 2008, the date she filed her petition for writ of mandate in the Superior Court. The college district appealed the decision and contends the trial court erred in finding sufficient evidence that Baxter was ready, willing, and able to return to work on the date she filed her petition. The Court of Appeal reversed the order. Under the union contract, an employee returning from disability leave must notify the district at least two weeks in advance. The request to return shall be accompanied by a statement from the employee's physician indicating that the employee can return to full-time employment without detriment to the employee's health. The trial court found that the petition for writ of mandate itself was sufficient notice that Baxter was ready to return to work. The Court of Appeal, however, noted that her treating doctor released her to return to work on four occasions, and she provided those releases to the college district. However, each of the releases was prospective, Baxter provided only a series of overlapping medical statements, each of which projected a return-to-work date some six months into the future. And before the putative return-to-work date in each one had arrived, Baxter obtained a new statement showing she would be disabled for another six months into the future. Thus, Baxter failed to make a prima facie showing of ability to return to work. The trial court reasoned, however, that the college district was on notice as of the date Baxter filed her petition in court that she was ready to return to work. The Court of Appeal disagreed. The petition itself did not constitute the required medical release. The Los Angeles NFL player dementia civil cases have now been transferred to a federal judge in Pennsylvania. There are now approximately 49 concussion lawsuits pending against the NFL and more than 850 former players named as plaintiffs. More than 30 of them are currently in multi-district litigation or MDL and have been transferred to the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> and with the consent of the court, they are being assigned to federal judge Anita Brody. The U.S. Judicial Panel on Multidistrict Litigation assigned them to her in January after meeting in Miami. Brody will handle all pretrial issues, including potentially key rulings on what evidence can be used at trial and whether a class can be certified. Judge Brody sent a, spent a decade on the bench in suburban Montgomery County before President George H.W. Bush nominated her for a federal judgeship. She took office in 1992 and took senior status in 2009. 
Brody has experience with multi-district litigation and was assigned the first NFL concussion case last summer. There are three types of lawsuits that have been filed thus far. Single plaintiff lawsuits, mass torts, and class actions. <clears throat> a mass tort is where several plaintiffs are joined together in one single action. The general requirement is that the plaintiffs share common questions of fact or law that arises out of the same series of transactions or occurrences. On the other hand, a class action generally involves one or two named plaintiffs, but the named plaintiff seeks to represent a class of several individuals not named in the complaint. The requirements for class actions are very strict, and each must be satisfied before a class can be certified. Mass tort cases were filed in California Superior Court in Los Angeles last year. 75 former professional football players have filed an 86-page lawsuit against the NFL, claiming the league concealed information about the danger of concussions. <clears throat> Some of the players are joined by their wives as additional plaintiffs who have pled a loss of consortium claim. Helmet makers are also named as defendants. Only a handful of the plaintiffs are currently California residents. In October 2011, the defendants sought and were granted removal of the case from state to federal court, where it was assigned to federal district judge Manuel Real. Judge Real transferred the cases pending in Los Angeles to the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, pursuant to 28 United States Code, Section 1407. It is expected that more cases pending around the country will be transferred to Pennsylvania, and it's expected that there will be many more players who will file additional lawsuits on essentially the same case theory. The NFL has indicated they will aggressively defend these suits. And now our fraud report. A school district security guard has been arrested for fraud. Julio Santiago of Roland Heights has been arrested on two felony counts for making a knowingly false or fraudulent statement to obtain compensation, and two felony accounts for presenting false or fraudulent written material to obtain compensation, and one felony count for grand theft. According to investigators, Santiago allegedly suffered an industrial injury in 2009 while working as a security guard for the Hacienda La Puente Unified School District. He later submitted a workers' comp claim to Intercare Insurance Services. Intercare conducted an investigation which revealed that Santiago was working as a security guard for another employer while collecting work comp benefits. The California Department of Insurance Fraud Division investigators confirmed that Santiago was knowingly working as a security guard for another employer. While doing so, he earned over $29,000 while also collecting work comp benefits. Santiago received TTD benefits over $13,000 from Intercare because he claimed he could not work as a security guard due to his work-related injury. His bail was set at $120,000. And in regulatory news, the report of the Workers' Compensation Ethics Advisory Committee concluded that several workers' comp judges had committed ethics violations. The Ethics Advisory Committee is charged with reviewing and monitoring complaints of misconduct filed against workers' comp administrative law judges. The committee is composed of nine members, each appointed by the DWC Administrative Director for a term of four years. Any person may file a complaint with the committee, and the committee will also accept anonymous complaints. 
The committee's latest report resolved 42 ethics complaints. 25 complaints were filed by unrepresentative workers and six by represented workers. Defense attorneys filed four, and an applicant attorney filed one, and attorneys representing a lien claimant filed two. Most of the complaints were concluded with a finding that the allegations were either not factually supported or that the committee did not identify any violations of the California Code of Judicial Ethics or the division's ethical regulations. However, some of the complaints resulted in findings of ethical violations. A person complained anonymously that the judge officiated at a wedding in the courtroom during business hours. Following its review of the investigation, the committee recommended further action by the administrative director. The judge was provided counseling and retrained on the canons of judicial ethics. A lien claimant attorney alleged that on more than one occasion during the lien conference calendar, the judge said that only licensed attorneys can be in his courtroom right now. Everyone else was told to get out. The complaint also alleged that the judge is often impatient, discourteous, and undignified to litigants and has berated lien claimants, hearing representatives, for not having gone to law school. The committee concluded that the conduct described in the complaint was an ethics violation and an anonymous person complained that the judge exhibited grossly inappropriate conduct and demeanor in handling a case. The committee concluded that the conduct described was also an ethics violation. Also, a defense attorney complained that while at the district office appearing on another case, a judge approached him, poked him in the chest, and said, I do not appreciate you claiming that I did not appear at conferences on a case. The committee concluded that the conduct described in the complaint was an ethics violation. The committee also found a violation as a result of a complaint by an unrepresented employee that the judge refused to hold an MSE for which the employee had filed a DOR because the judge thought she had failed to appear when in fact she had signed in and had been discussing settlement with the defense attorney. And after an ex-party conversation with the defense attorney in which the judge was told she had not appeared, the judge took the case off calendar. The political rhetoric is heating up in Sacramento as the California Applicants Attorneys Association, or CAW, weighs in with a 15-page report called California Workers' Compensation 2012, The State of the System. CAW claims that as the 2012 legislative session opens, there is widespread agreement by California workers' compensation system stakeholders that permanent disability benefits should be increased. CAW also claims that the adoption of the 2005 rating schedule reduced the average rating by 31.5%. However, Governor Brown has signaled that any increase in permanent disability benefits should be balanced by changes that create savings. The CAR report says it identified areas where potential savings can be found. The report says that the main driver of medical costs is the expense of medical cost containment, including utilization and bill review expenses, and medical network costs. On a per-claim basis, medical legal costs more than doubled post-reform. The expense of adjusting claims has also significantly increased. Thus, CAW says that efforts to find savings needs to focus on the rapid growth in medical cost containment expenses like utilization review, on the sharp increase in average medical legal costs, 
and on the doubling of claim adjustment costs. It should be possible, they say, to achieve sufficient savings in these areas to balance the cost of amending the permanent disability rating schedule. And in medical news, a new documentary on healthcare fraud is set to air on CNBC. The CNBC investigative team, Investigations, Inc., spent six months on the front lines with federal agents for the upcoming documentary, Healthcare Hustle. The team found that the fee-for-service model that guides most of American healthcare has created a high-stakes numbers game pitting government against increasingly sophisticated crooks. One of the most difficult types of fraud to combat is known as upcoding, where the provider bills Medicare or Medicaid for a more expensive procedure than the patient actually received. Every procedure and diagnosis has a billing code. The codes, codes are used not only for billing Medicare and Medicaid, but for workers' comp claims and many private insurance programs as well. Medical co coding has become a profession in itself as providers try to maximize their revenues without running afoul of the rules. Entire businesses have sprung up to teach practitioners how to navigate these codes. One such business featured in the documentary is operated by Dr. Adam Alpers, an osteopathic physician in Ocala, Florida. Alpers created a video series called Medical Coding Cash Secrets, which he sells on his website. CNBC purchased the video series, which sells for $349. Alpers explains how doctors can bill Medicare and Medicaid when they tell a patient to quit smoking. Alpers says in his video that this simple technique could generate anywhere between $10,000 and $15,000 in additional revenue. The video also explains how having a patient complete a six-minute walk down the office hallway can be billed as a simple pulmonary stress test, a code that can generate more revenue than similar procedures done in the examination room. The one-hour original documentary called Healthcare Hustle is reported by award-winning senior correspondent Scott Cohen and the CNBC Investigations, Inc. team. The team follows agents of the U.S. Health and Human Services Office of Inspector General in operations from New York to Texas and as far as Puerto Rico. Drug Enforcement Administration figures show a dramatic rise between 2000 and 2010 in the distribution of oxycodone, the key ingredient in oxycodin, Percocet, and Percodan. Some places saw sales increase 16-fold. Meanwhile, the distribution of hydrocodone, the key ingredient in Vicodin, Norco, and Lortab, is rising in Appalachia, the original epicenter of the painkiller epidemic, as well as in the Midwest. The increases have coincided with a wave of overdose deaths, pharmacy robberies, and other problems in New Mexico, Nevada, Utah, Florida, and other states. Opioid pain relieves that relievers, that category that includes oxycodone and hydrocodone, caused over 14,000 overdose deaths in 2008 alone, and the death toll is rising. Nationwide, pharmacies received and ultimately dispensed the equivalent of 69 tons of pure oxycodone and 42 tons of pure hydrocodone in 2010, the last year for which statistics are available. 
That's enough to give 45 milligram Percocets and 24 5 milligram Vicodins to every person in the United States. The increase is partly due to the aging U.S. population with pain issues and a greater willingness by doctors to treat pain. Sales are also being driven by addiction as users become physically dependent on painkillers and begin doctor shopping to keep the prescriptions coming. Opioids like hydrocodone and oxycodone can release intense feelings of well-being. Some abusers swallow the pills, others crush them, then smoke, snort, or inject the powder. And in financial news, the WCIRB Governing Committee met to review the actuarial committee analysis of 2011 experience and to determine whether the WCIRB should submit a mid-year peer premium rate filing. The indicated July 1, 2012 average peer premium rate is $2.51 per $100 of payroll. This indication is 7.7% above the average pure premium rate proposed by the WCIRB in January 2012. The continued deterioration of the indication since the last filing was largely due to increases in loss development on the 2010 accident year, increasing allocated loss adjustment costs, and lower forecasts of wage growth in the still sluggish California economy. The governing committee expressed concern about the ongoing escalation in several key system cost drivers and, as a result, directed the WCIRB to submit a July 1, 2012 advisory pure premium rate filing reflecting the indicated pure premium rate. The WCIRB anticipates submitting the filing by April 13th. The filing and all related documents will be available in the regulatory filing section of the WCIRB website and the WCIRB will issue a WCIRB wire story once the filing has been submitted to the California Department of Insurance. CNA Financial Corporation has been reducing its workers' compensation coverage available for middle market accounts while increasing it for small businesses. CNA CFO Craig Mentz told attendees of the 2012 J.P. Morgan Insurance Conference in New York that workers' comp has been quite a bit of a problem line. Mentz says that it uh, Mentz says that it has been acting over a number of years to reduce its writings in workers' comp. Work comp now accounts for about 11% of CNA's revenue and 23% of revenue in commercial lines. That's down two points from what it was two years ago. Yet, CNA is growing its workers' comp book of business for small companies because the comp results in that market are actually quite favorable. But for middle market businesses, it has reduced writing by over 19% over the last two years. In its 10K SEC filing, CNA reported that the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act may increase its workers' comp operating costs and underwriting losses. And in other news, the Department of Industrial Relations has scheduled an additional sessions for the public forums on workers' compensation. An afternoon session has been added in Oakland on April 30th. The DWC continues to receive a great response from the public for the opportunity to provide feedback on improvements to the work comp system. Because of this response, they added one more session in Oakland. 
The forums are intended to discuss current issues in the work comp system and to gather information from stakeholders and members of the public on suggestions for improvements. DIR Director Christine Baker and DWC Administrative Director Rosa Moran will host the forums. The Oakland Forum will be held at the Elihu M. Harris State Building Auditorium, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Seating is limited at many of the Workers' Comp Public Forum locations, and registration is required. Verbal testimony at the open forums will be limited to three minutes per speaker, and written testimony can be submitted to dir at dir.ca.gov in advance of the meeting. With that, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for Work Comp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please stop by again next week for more news.